Well, good morning, everybody. Oh, now that was very poor. <laughs> lower, lower than average. Morning, everybody. <laughs> okay, this is a good way of... I don't know if you know this, but this is how we take the temperature of where people are at. So if you just look at me and go, hmm, I think, were they in that worship time I was just in? Anyway, it's wonderful to see you and... Um, Hopefully you're all getting your heads around the whole um, compassion thing. There are things, there are, there are flyers going around this morning as well. Um, these are just the notes from today's talk. There's, quite, there's been quite a lot to get through as we go through Romans. There's quite a lot of information, which is why we've produced notes. And um, if you miss them, there are a few kicking around on the back, or you should be able to download them from the website with, from the previous talks as well. Um, so hopefully you've got one of those, and hopefully it's very clear about the offering. What we'll do... Um, is if you are still filling in a compassion offering, just hold on to that and we'll give you another chance at the end of the morning to, to give that in. Okay, thank you for that. Okay, so this is the last talk in our 15-part series on Romans. Oh, he's ready. Come on, let's give thanks to God. The Lord says, um, it says in the Bible that God blesses a cheerful giver. So everybody smile. And we'll say, thank you, Lord. Your, Lord, your generosity to us is unbelievable. We can't even begin to put it into words. And yet here we are, um, as a small part of our worship, giving back to you and saying, please take this money and use it for your glory. And Lord, for this special offering for compassion, Lord, use it to just break open the boundaries of what's possible for us to do in this city, for you to do in this city, partnering with us. So use this money um, and bless those who decide to uh, how to spend it exactly and thank you Lord Jesus Amen. Amen Bless you Steve thanks for that <laughs> Wonderful so as I was saying we're into Romans and this is, the, this is the end of a 15 part series I don't think we've ever done anything like this I haven't ever done anything like this um, I hope you've made it through uh, without too many casualties um, I've, uh, Can you put the slide up for me guys? Thank you. I've said quite a lot of the times that that doing this series is a bit like climbing a mountain. I'm not saying that Romans is like climbing a mountain. I'm saying studying it is like climbing a mountain. And we've used this analogy. And we've been through all of the different aspects as we've gone through the book. We've looked at the introduction, which basically Paul just outlines what is the gospel. The gospel, the good news of God. And then basically spends the next 15 chapters just kind of unpacking and outworking that um, and as you know, Romans was written, um, written as a letter, an ap- apostolic letter by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. And essentially, he didn't actually write it to explain what the gospel was. He wrote it to sort out some pastoral issues between two different groups of believers. Some of them were Jewish background believers, some of them were, were non-Jewish background believers. And because they were all together in the same church through circumstances, Paul, they, they, were, they were having some quite tricky um, basic disagreements and Paul wrote this letter to try and help them work through their disagreements and in the course of writing the letter he basically outlined what it is his theology and his thinking about what the gospel is and how that works and luckily we all get the chance to read it and benefit from it 2,000 years later Um, and so Paul introduces what the gospel is and then he introduces the wrath of God why it is that everyone needs the gospel and then he introduces the righteousness of God what it is what God's plan was how he made us right again how he made it possible for us to be with God okay and then he gives us hope about what that means to actually live in Christ and we've been through all of these um, parts and then he talks he takes three chapters out of this sort of narrative to talk about unity 
and how it is that God's plan works out both for Jews and for Gentiles. That's a central part of the book here. And then we get to sort of the pinnacle, um, which is at Romans 12, 1. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Looking back, in view, looking back at all that God has done, the mercy that he's shown to us, therefore... Let's live in a different way moving forward. And then he starts to talk about transformation and what it is to live a renewed life every day. That's the peak verse. That's the kind of life that God expects us to live in the light of everything that he's explained. And then this very last little bit that we're going to talk about today is about mission. It's a short but vitally important section on how all of this gets worked out. And as, as you can see, there are some key verses along the top. So we've, we've been here, we've been, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. These are some of the key verses that we've looked at um, from one. Then this is a paraphrase um, of, uh, of Romans uh, 3. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Doesn't matter what your background is, doesn't matter who you think you are. We are all in need of God's saving grace. That's the gospel. We all need it. And the righteousness that God gives us comes by faith alone. It doesn't happen because of anything that we have done ourselves. It happens as we put our faith in Jesus. And then we come to this next verse. There's no condemnation. If we choose to live that way, then that affects everything about how we live and what we believe about ourselves. And then, as I've already said, we get to 12, 1, where he says, in view of God's mercy, we need to offer our bodies as sacrifices. We don't conform to the world. We're transformed by the renewing of our mind, the reality of the gospel. And since that uh, chapter 12, verse 1, we've been on a sort of, we've started the downward journey, and uh, we've just been contemplating what, how our lives change in the reality of all of this. Um, this is a journey that we cannot, as Christians, seriously take without being prepared to change. There's no point in studying Romans if we're not prepared to put it into practice and be changed forever. Why would you want to do all the work of climbing up, or what that actually means, reading and rereading and digging deeper and deeper into what's sometimes quite dense writing and dense theology in order to, why would we take the trouble to really try and understand what the truth of this is and what it's all about and what Jesus did for us without then wanting to take the next step of actually doing something about it. And the challenge, as Paul says, is to live transformed and not conformed. The truth is that that the challenge is to renew our minds in the way that we think. Learning to live up to who it is that God has made us to be. I'm no longer a child of God. No, I'm no longer a slave to this God the wrong way around. This is what happens when you just go ad lib. I didn't write it down. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. Just love that song. Love that song. And the rest of chapter 12 to 14 describes how to live that out and how only the gospel, only the gospel makes this possible. How we've looked over the last two or three weeks about how it's about real love. Love that goes beyond feelings. Love that leads to action. We've talked about how living out the gospel in our society can be a challenge. It affects everything. It affects how we build communities of love and service within the church. How we're expected to get on with people in our church community who we may not see eye to eye with. Has anybody ever found that a challenge? Because I have. 
It affects how our, that re- it talks about how that real love is, you know, it's committed and it's selfless and it's practical and it's patient. And actually, it's not even just for the people in our church. It's for the people in our communities and everywhere. It affects how we submit to government. It affects how we govern if we're in a position of power. It affects how we treat others who may have different ways of working out their faith to us. And Chris talks about that. We'll come back to that in a second. In short, the gospel, this good news of Jesus that Paul has underlined and explored and worked out in Romans, this changes everything. I don't think I'm ever going to be the same again having read this and studied it. And in chapter 15, which we're going to look at today, Paul sums up all of his thinking. And there's two essential sections that we're going to look at. The first part is called gospel unity in the church. If you've got a Bible, please do open it to chapter 15. Um, or if you've got a phone or an iPad or something with it on, do open it. And we're going to look at two, there are two key elements to what we're going to talk about this morning. Gospel unity in the church, which is the first uh, 13 or 14 verses. And then gospel mission in the world. And this first section, unity in the church, in this part, Paul is revisiting all of the key themes that he's previously explored in the previous 14 chapters. Okay, this is kind of a summary Hey, guys, Paul's saying, remember, this is the reason I wrote to you. It's essential that we think about unity and how Jesus makes us one, regardless of background or race or religion. And I'm not actually going to read it through um, as one go, as one chunk. I'm just going to go as we go, if that's all right. So I'm going to take verse one to three first and then make some comments on that and then just work our way through this first section, we talk about God, he talks about gospel sacrifices. So here's 15 and verse 1. We who are strong, Paul says, ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please their neighbours for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Now right here, Paul is building on the previous chapter, chapter 14, which is what Chris spoke about two or three weeks ago in our last attempt at this, um, our, our last session on, on Romans. He talked then about the weak and the strong. He talked then about the weak and the strong. I don't have time to unpack it now. But basically, this phrase, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak, is a fundamental Christian ethical principle. It's a fundamental principle of how we do life. That people in any kind of power or authority have to steward it well. Have to steward it well. How we bear with one another shows how much, whether or not we've truly grasped what Jesus said and did for us. And verse 2 continues and implies that this principle doesn't just apply within the church. He's not just talking about how we bear with our brothers and sisters. He's talking about how we bear with our neighbours. This is talking about community. This is talking about how we as Christians live across society. The challenge of the gospel is to live differently in society. Are we, the Christians, known for how we treat those who society might call weak? I won't go there. I was going to mention Donald Trump, but I'm not going to. (laughs) No, don't go there. (laughs) Just Let's just think about, if we say we're a Christian, how we treat people who society thinks are weak. I think I I can stop there on that one. 
try not to get embroiled in politics. We are not here for ourselves, but we are here for others. And in verse 3, Paul says, your example for this is Jesus. Your example for this is Jesus. Even Christ didn't please himself. But as it is written, the insults of you, sorry, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Jesus, Paul describes, was willing to suffer insults for the sake of God's truth. In Roman society, you were considered weak if you were Jewish and you kept to certain food laws. And you were considered strong if you weren't. And to be considered weak was kind of a shameful thing. And so for people who came into the Roman church from a Roman background, and they were, they were considered strong by society, and they were mixing with people who were weak, okay, considered weak by society, they just didn't want to mix. And here's Paul saying, no, 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 you need to be prepared. You need to be prepared to, to, to take on the insults and to take on the shame. Okay, Christians should be willing to suffer the ridicule that some people might heap on them if they choose to hang out with those who society deems are socially unworthy, regardless of what society might say. And Jesus is our example for this. So the gospel brings together people of different backgrounds, and Jesus is our sacrifice, our example of sacrifice. And then he talks about gospel encouragement. In verse 4, it's a brilliant verse, this, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So Paul is reminding us that the Bible is there to teach and encourage us. Everything that was written in the past, at his point he's talking about the Old Testament, we can apply that to the whole Bible. Not only do we have Jesus and his example, we also have his word, the scriptures, the word of God, which as he points out is the basis for our education, it's the basis for our encouragement, and it fills us with hope and expectation. And then in verses 5 and 6, he says this, May the God who gives you endurance... And encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had. So that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's praying. Remember, he's already addressed their key pastoral issues and now he's praying for them. Reminding them and us that this unity that comes is a supernatural gift. And it comes when people are trying to follow Jesus together. Not just from trying to get on, but from genuinely and passionately following Jesus. Tim Keller says this. He says, passive Christians will not experience much unity. Only believers who are following hard, setting priorities for Christian growth and ministry will experience deep unity. Because our unity comes in the following of Jesus. That's the point. Jesus is our unifying factor. And unless we're all trying to live out this gospel under one Jesus, making sacrifices and putting him first, then guess what? Our own agendas will continue to take precedence. And if the gospel's about anything, it's about laying down your own agenda and following Jesus' instead. Verse 7, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. It's kind of summing up everything you said. The gospel makes all this kind of living make total sense, because under God, no one gets in. No one's good enough, apart from through Jesus. So everyone, no matter how great we think we are, no matter what we may have achieved, everyone, all of us, are united in our having failed to live up to God's standards and are therefore all in need of Jesus and his righteousness. Every single one of us, no matter what your qualifications are, 
doesn't matter what your experience is or your training. doesn't matter what your background. doesn't matter if you've been a Christian donkey's years or 10 minutes or not even a Christian yet. We are all united, Paul says, in our ability to recognize, in our failure to have lived up to God's standards. Now, I'm sorry if you're offended by that. It's not me trying to offend you, but that's the gospel. And Tim Keller also says this, the way you can tell how much people understand the gospel is to look at how much you're able to love people despite their flaws. Say that again. The way we can tell how much we understand the gospel is to look at how much we love people despite their flaws. Are we prepared to accept one another as Christ accepted us? And then in verses 8 onwards, Paul talks about how the gospel breaks down walls of hostility. And he appeals again for unity among the believers with the Jewish and the Gentile backgrounds. I tell you, verse 8 says, that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed. And moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. I just realised I've completely neglected all my slides. That's the weak and the strong. That's the Bible. That's unity in Jesus. Oh, I left that one in. I meant to leave that out. And this is verse is to illustrate verse, where is it? 12. He quotes a load of stuff from the Old Testament again. He's showing again from the scriptures. And he says, he quotes Isaiah, because Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise To rule over the nations, the Gentiles will hope in him. See, Jesus was called the root of Jesse. That's a funny phrase, isn't it? It's a funny phrase. What does that mean? This is an olive stump or root. And this is another branch that's growing up from the stump. I saw this when I was in Israel. It's in Nazareth, actually. And and they said, oh, that's, that's an example of what, Isaiah is talking about when he says a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse from his roots a branch will bear fruit. So even though the old stump seems to not be functioning anymore the roots are there. And that's just a little example of what Paul is talking about when he's trying to make this point again and again and again and show from the scriptures and show from the prophets that the Jews and the non-Jews should be united in their pursuit of Jesus. And there's a blessing in verse 13. He blesses them and he says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's Paul summing up pretty much all of Romans to this point. Gospel unity. And then he turns to this next part. Gospel mission. And I am going to read this passage. And this is from verse 14 through to verse 22. Follow with me if you want. I'm going to read it from the NIV. I myself, Paul says, am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness and filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. Yet I have written to you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. 
Verse 17, therefore I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in the leading of the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done. By the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. And this is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. It's only a small part, but it's so, so vital in our understanding of where we go from here. See, having extensively instructed the Roman church on this issue of unity, (laughs) it's quite nice, that understatement, isn't it? When he says, I have written to you quite boldly on some points. You know, he has extensively instructed them and laid out his argument piece at a time, piece at a time, chapter by chapter. Of course, he didn't have chapters in those days, but you know what I mean, you know, question by question. He's recapped the whole thing again in the first part of verse 15. And Paul summarizes and says, basically, guys, I've given you everything that you need to know. And I trust you to get on and sort it out. I try that with my children sometimes. (laughs) I've given you the instructions, now go and deal with it. You don't need me anymore. And in any any case, Paul says, I have another agenda. I have a bigger aim. My aim is to preach the gospel to the whole world and to go to the places where it has not been yet preached. And he then describes himself. He says, I'm doing this because this is my duty. I am called to minister as a minister of Christ Jesus with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel. And in this next three or four verses, this passage is where Paul unpacks fully how he sees his own mission and his own motivation. And there's something to learn from this because fundamentally this should be our call as a church as well. This is what God calls us to do. Now, our our concern as those who are following Jesus is that we are ministers of the gospel. That we are and I'm just, I'm just talking about those of us who are paid to do this, I'm talking about all of us, that we fulfill this priestly role. The priestly duty to proclaim the gospel. Our concern should be the preaching of the gospel for the salvation of people and the changing of the world. That's what we're called to. Paul, of course, is a shining example of this, and he's very gifted. I don't, I'm not saying when I say this that each of us is necessarily called to do exactly what Paul did. But I am saying that collectively, as a community of believers, we are called to do what Paul did. And some of us, as individuals, will be called to do certain aspects of that. And he has five key points. And I borrowed these points from Simon Ponsonby from an outline by him. They're not mine. Paul's priestly prize, his priestly pride, his priestly preaching, his priestly practice. Should we try and say this very fast together? <laughs> Paul's priestly prize. Paul's pri- <laughs> okay. This is all about the gospel mission in the world. So the priestly prize, verse 16, he says, He gave me the priestly duty, Paul says, of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. You see, if you're an Old Testament priest, your duty was to make sacrifices to substitute for people's sins so that worshippers could be made clean and guilt-free and acceptable to God because you've sacrificed the best lamb. 
Of course, we know now that Jesus has become the sacrifice. He became the substituting sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice. And so now Paul is saying the priestly duty is not to sacrifice the lamb, that's been done, but to proclaim the gospel of the lamb of God who was sacrificed for sin. And so he sees, as Paul sees it, the priest's duty is to proclaim the gospel. And the prize is not anything for himself. The prize is not something that we're going to get. The prize is for God. And the prize is that people are saved. And people who didn't before know Jesus are now presented by Jesus as living sacrifices to God because they have encountered the gospel for themselves. Do you get this? Are you with me? You're all very quiet. I'm going to assume it's because you're thinking. Preach it, brother. That's it. Come on. Let's get a bit Pentecostal here. The prize is seeing non-believers come to Jesus. I mean, what else is there to aim for? Our prize in preaching the gospel is to see the lost saved, is to see people who don't know Jesus come to him. Yes, we can make a difference in the world. Yes, we can do all sorts of things. But the kingdom is about seeing people come to Jesus, right? I don't know if you've heard this phrase before, but someone said this once, the church is the only organization that exists for the benefit of its non-members. Shall I say that again? Why don't you say it with me, because it's written on your sheet, so you can read it. It's under number one, B1, third bullet point down, in quote marks. The church is the only organization that exists for the benefit of its non-members. If this is our main duty, I wonder where our main resource goes. That's a good challenging question. You know, some church leaders come to view their role as a managing of decline. I think that's a tragedy. Now, by the grace of God, we're not in decline in this church. Although, to be honest, we have stood still for quite a while. Not in the last year, though. Our numbers are up by 19% since from September last year to uh, September 14 to September 15. 19%. Now, it's not all about numbers, but every number tells a story. And every story is somebody encountering Jesus. And some of those are encountering Jesus for the first time. We have other indicators, too, that we look at. See, I just don't believe that Jesus ever envisaged decline. Every metaphor of the kingdom of God is about growth. And we will decline, Paul says, if we take our eye off the prize. And the prize is to see those who don't yet know Jesus... Give him their yes and see their lives transformed. I would really, really like to be somebody who was managing revival, not managing decline. Yeah? And that's the prize, Paul says. Paul has a priestly prize and Paul has a priestly pride. In verse 17, in Christ Jesus, this is the ESV, by the way, because it's a slightly better translation. It says in verse 17, in Christ Jesus then, Paul says, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. See, Paul has achieved many things in his life. I mean, the list is endless. You know, his spiritual gifts. There's, there's all sorts of things that he could be proud of. He, had an, he was incredibly gifted. Had an amazing mind. He has this calling to be an apostle. He's got utter, utter zeal and passion and enthusiasm. He suffered tremendously, extensively. The churches he's planted, the converts he's won, the miracles that he's seen happen. And yet, what was his pride in? It wasn't in any of that. His pride was in only in his service of Jesus. Paul was someone whose awareness of God's glory and awareness of his own sinfulness was so real 
that he knew the grace of the gospel in his life every day and could only ever live for God, for God's glory and for God's fame. Now, I love our church. I love all that we do here. I love the way we do worship here. I love the guys who lead us. I love the way we're so friendly and the coffee. I don't drink coffee, actually, but I gather that we serve good coffee here. I understand that we, um, you know, when I meet people who come in for the first time, they say they're wonderfully welcomed. I understand that we try and be one of the friendliest bunches of people. I love that anyone can come here from anywhere and meet with God. In fact, to be honest, I think this is the greatest church for miles around. (laughs) Of course, I'm joking. I don't really think that. But it can be so easy to boast in our great church and in the things we do, can't it? You know, I mean, our compassion projects that we talked about last week are are genuinely amazing. I don't know how much we're gonna, how much you guys are gonna give, but whatever. God's here, and we have much to be to celebrate and be thankful for. But our boast is only in Jesus, only in Jesus, and in all that He's done. He saved us. That's what it means to be a gospel church. That's what it means to be a church that's soaked in the blood of Jesus. First of all, in what he's done to save us, and now what he's doing in partnering with us to save others. So there was this prize and there was this pride, and then Paul talks about his priestly preaching. I'm just going to read from the end of 19. It says, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ, Paul says. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel. Now, if you go outside of the church, the word preaching sometimes has quite negative connotations, doesn't it? I mean, have you ever heard someone say, oh, don't preach at me? You know? I wonder where else in society you'd hear a monologue like this, just a 40-minute or 30-minute sort of talk. Maybe in a theatre, maybe in a lecture hall, where the agenda is to entertain or inform. Paul's mission was to preach and preach the gospel. Whether it's in fashion or not, he's saying that central to the mission of God is the preaching of the gospel. There's a guy called Archbishop Donald Coggan. He was the old Archbishop of Canterbury, some two or three, three or four back. He said this, Here is the miracle of the divine economy, that between the forgiveness of God and the sin of man stands the preacher. Between the provision of God and the need of man stands the preacher. And between the truth of God and the quest of man stands the preacher. There's a temptation even, even within the church to water down the preaching content in order that we can be more culturally relevant. Some churches, that's, that's what they choose to do. Paul's example and his later encouragement to Timothy flies right in the face of that. And here at Winchester Vineyard, I just want to say we're a gospel church. And what, that, I believe, is one of the reasons why we felt so strongly in the first place that God was asking us to do Romans this year. To preach this book, to get a grounding in the gospel, to get a grounding in what the gospel actually is. And of course, of course the gospel comes through every book of the Bible in one way or another. And I have a, I have a story, a little kid's Bible called the Jesus Storybook Bible, which I've read with my kids sometimes. And uh, as you read through the Old Testament, there's a little, there's a little sub, subtitle and it's, Every Story Whispers His Name. And as you read through the Old Testament, it's beautifully written, and it kind of t- t- it talks about the story, and then just towards the end of each story, it just says, you know, but as you look ahead, and it just kind of foreshadows Jesus. So every Old Testament story whispers and anticipates the name of Jesus, and every New Testament book either tells his story, or teaches on it, or helps us understand it, or work it out. So no matter whatever the subject we're going to focus on, 
be it a specific Bible topic or a book like this or a more thematic approach to preaching, we will teach the Bible and we will reflect the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done. I want, to, I want people to encounter Jesus here. Not just some gifted communicator who keeps them entertained for half an hour. Or, some, or me as well. But um, somebody else. Sorry, that didn't go right, did it? You know what I mean. This is about Jesus. Every season of the church, this is Simon Ponsonby, every season of the church decline has been marked by a decline in its preaching. And every season of revival and renewal is marked by a return to biblical preaching. We have to preach the gospel in season and out of season. That's what Paul says in 2 Timothy. <laughs> Listen to this. In, ni- in 1777, John Wesley said this, Give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God, and I care not a straw whether they be clergymen or laymen. Such alone will shake the gates of hell and set up the kingdom of God on earth. So obviously there's a specific challenge to those of us who are called to preach, but actually there's a challenge for all of us. Any one of us who are following Jesus to read and explore what the Bible is in such a way as it educates and encourages us and gives us hope. We need to understand the gospel so we can live it out. And the gospel is accompanied, number four, by signs and wonders. And that's what Paul says in verse 19. He says, I'm leading the Gentiles to obey God, what I've said and done by the power of signs and miracles through the power of the Holy Spirit. So everywhere Paul preached, he saw miracles happen. Signs and wonders. His preaching was accompanied by signs and wonders. The gospel is not signs and wonders. The gospel is what Jesus did for us. It is accompanied by signs and wonders. Inherent in the gospel is the power of God. And when Paul preached that, he expected miracles to happen. Now, we've preached through Romans for about the last three or four months. And do you know what? It's the last three or four weeks. We've seen some pretty incredible and significant healing going on here. Several people have been significantly healed. Steve's nodding and smiling. You know? I just read the uh, Healing on the Streets report from January and February. I'll just read you a couple of examples. This is what people, they don't put the names, but this is just somebody who was, one person was released from a trapped nerve and sciatica in their foot. Strength for all of his joints, nerves, muscles, and freedom from pain. After testing it out, he found that he did not have any pain and was jumping about excitedly. Somebody else had back pain, and they experienced a reduced pain and an ease of movement in legs. Somebody else was recovering from pneumonia and experienced peace. Somebody else had sciatica and the pain went away. When we pray and we invite the Holy Spirit, he comes. Now, sometimes people don't get healed and sometimes they do. And I don't have time to go into all of that and why that happens now. But it is always worth pushing in. It is always worth pushing in in prayer and faith because as I read in the Bible, when the gospel is preached, signs and wonders accompany it. That was Paul's expectation and it should be ours. And it's my expectation today. In about five minutes, I'm going to finish and we're going to pray for people. And if you are in need of a healing miracle, we would love to pray for you today. I think God is particularly doing something around backs and around sciatica. He was on there and he's been doing it here as well. How many of you have got a back problem? All right, great. Just hold on to that because... No, don't hold on to it literally. You know what I mean? <laughs> hold on to that thought because we're going to pray for you in a minute. And just to finish, Paul's priestly parish... Verse 20, Paul says, It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I wouldn't be building on someone else's foundation. And all the missionaries of the house, their, lights, their eyes lit up. 
You see, Paul was a pioneer. He was a starter and a planter. And he was totally driven by the fact that he didn't want anyone to die without having a chance to hear the gospel preached and the opportunity to give their lives to Jesus. He was always on the go, always moving from, the next, from place to place, always moving to the next opportunity for the gospel. And having spent almost 30 years pioneering ministry in Asia Minor, in pretty much every town and city around there, he's traveling, he's been preaching, he's been planting, he's been training. By the time that he's writing to the Roman church, he's already got this plan to move further north. He says, I'm going to come and visit you, and then I'm going to Spain. I'm going further north. And by the way, you guys can fund my trip as well. <laughs> we haven't got time to read that bit, but that's what he says at the end of this chapter. That's what it means to be an apostle. The word apostle means sent one. Paul wasn't interested in staying put. In fact, he says right back at the start that he tried several times to come to Rome. I've, I've tried several times to come and visit you, but basically every time I did, something came up and it was another opportunity for me to go and preach the gospel somewhere where they don't know Jesus yet. So I'm really sorry, you guys. Love you, but I'm going there first. I'm sure he didn't say love you, but you, you know what I mean. It's kind of what he says. And even now he's saying, look, I've written to you to help you deal with the problems you've got going on in your church. Here's my advice. There's my counsel to you. You're big enough and old, ugly enough and old enough to sort it out now. I'm going on to preach the gospel. And I keep trying to come to you, but I keep having other opportunities to do it. You see, Paul's interested in taking the gospel to new places. Now, you know that we as a movement are called to church planting. Next week, we are holding vineyard, the National Vineyard Church Planting Sunday. We've got a wonderful guest speaker, Lauren Fern, coming to speak to us next week. You know that about uh, 25 years ago, this was the number of vineyard churches that were in the UK, and now this is the number. You probably can't see that very well, but they're all over, although they're sort of fewer and far between as you go further north, which is another challenge. You see, we as a movement are committed to the practice of pioneering new churches and new expressions of church in areas where there isn't a vineyard church. That's not to say that we think that the vineyard church is the best in the world. That's not true. We're not into world domination. But we just know that statistically, a new church provides the best opportunity for people to find Jesus for the first time. That's how it works. And so when we do plant churches, you know, again, the temptation to rock up in town and start stealing people away from other churches, that, that can be there. But we try very hard not to do that. We try very hard not to do that. I know a few church planters, and they all start out with this kind of goal. We've got some friends uh, that we've got to know over the last year or so in Ashford. They said when they moved to that city, they said, we want to be a church where people who don't normally go to church can go and feel welcome and experience God's love and power in a non-churchy way. You'll see them on the video that we show next week for Church Planting Sunday. And I was just, I, you know, I'd totally forgotten until we were just worshipping here that we started this series on the second Sunday in October. That's when we started our Roman series. The first Sunday in October, we invited Matt and Katie Faulkner here, who are from um, Chichester Vineyard. They planted it a year and a bit ago, a year and a half ago now. And they came to share. And I remember this because, I don't know if you remember if you were here, but Matt got up and he said, the first thing I want to say is how wonderful the worship is here. Because we only have 15 of us in our church, so you know, it's lovely to come and be part of a bigger crowd, worshipping. I don't think it's any mistake that this series in Romans started with church planting and finishes with church planting. When God wants to really emphasise something in the Bible, he bookends it like that. And that's what the gospel is. 
As far as Paul's concerned, the gospel is going to a new place and pioneering something new, not building on anyone else's platform, but actually starting something new. And you can learn a bit more about that next week when Lauren comes. And for those of you who don't know, Lauren, who's coming to speak to us next week, 10 years ago, was saved, became a Christian as a student in Winchester, a teaching student at Winchester University, joined this church and then went on with her life, became a teacher, did a various other things, and now she's just started planting a, a, a church in Cambridge. They launched officially last October. And she'll be coming and telling her story there. And you should come and hear her. Um, I'm so out of time. I just want to do one more, give you one more quote. Yes, here we go. If you're... Some of us are called to pioneer new expressions of church and new churches. Some of you in this room are called to either plant or be part of church plants. I've, to, I've spoken to a few about, of you about that already, so that, I know that's not a surprise. But there will be others who I don't know about who God is also speaking to. And for some of us, God is calling us to get involved in something new. The rest of us, oh, by the way, something new that seeks to reach people who don't yet know Jesus. The rest of us are also called to reach people who don't know Jesus. We're just called to do it here. So whether you're a church planter or not a church planter, the challenge is still the same. And if you are a church planter, we'll pray for you because you're going to need it. (laughs) There's a guy called C.T. Studd. He was a a great name, isn't it? Um, He was a cricketer really well-known cricketer, and he wrote, and then he went on to be a missionary. I'm going to just read you this little paragraph about him. C.T. Studd, who captained, captained Eton, Cambridge, and England in cricket, that's him in his old life, when he got a bit older, was converted through the preaching of D.L. Moody in the late Victorian era. He quickly got the point. Giving up everything, a large inheritance, a title, a reputation, and a distinguished future among England's elite. He entered 15 years of fruitful ministry in China, then left for six years mission work in India. Then at the age of 50, he heard, the mission field, he heard of mission field openings in Africa and went there for some 25 years, establishing vibrant churches. And his motto was this, some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Isn't that awesome? And that, in a sense, its essence is Paul's message. Now, we know from history that Paul didn't actually make it to Spain. He died in Rome before he got there. But his intention and his message were very clear. The gospel is about unity, and you guys in Rome, you need to sort yourselves out. But the gospel is about mission. And preaching the gospel is about seeing people come to Jesus. And then in chapter 16, which we're not going to read he sends greetings to those he knows there. He gives a warning to watch out for people who claim to be teachers and leaders and aren't living up to this gospel life. He sends greetings from people he's with, and then he finally prays for them with a blessing that I want to read and pray over you. So why don't you stand together? I'm just going to read you from chapter 16 and verse 25 to 27, the blessing that Paul finishes the book of Romans with. Now, I'm going to read it from the ESV version because I think it reads a little bit better. Why don't we just close our eyes and why don't we invite the Holy Spirit to be here once again?
Holy Spirit, come. And in the words of Paul, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. And Holy Spirit, we just thank you for your presence here. And we thank you for the truth of the gospel. And I want to thank you that you are here right now. As we sang right at the beginning of this service, you are here. Emmanuel, you are here. So Holy Spirit, come and do all that you want to do in our midst. Come and do all that you want to do in our midst. We welcome you, Spirit. We welcome you and we invite you. We welcome your presence and we thank you for your truth. And having heard today's talk or maybe different talks through Romans, it might be that today is your day and you've decided, yes, I want to give my yes to Jesus. I'm going to choose to follow him. You know, you sang with us or you heard us sing, I am a child of God, but that's not something that's true for you yet. And if that's you, today is a great day to give your yes to Jesus and say, yes, God, I want to be your child. I want that assurance and that certainty. And so if that relates to you today, please come and talk to me um, when people come forward in a few minutes. Don't be embarrassed because it's an amazing decision to make. Now, there are some other ways that you might want to respond this morning. If you've come with back pain or pain in your shoulders or your hips and trouble with that, we would love to pray for you. As um, Nigel mentioned, we had a few backs healed recently. And so you know, God's at work in those areas. So we'd love to pray. So in a few moments, I'll give you an opportunity to come forward and respond. It might be that when you read that little quote from C.T. Studd about wanting to run a, a rescue shop within a yard of hell, your heart just went, yes, your heart leapt because you want to be out on the edge and doing something different with people who don't know Jesus yet. And if that's you, we'd love to pray for you. And it might also be that you have an opportunity to preach, whether that is through an Alpha course you do at work, through the CU at college, through um, different church opportunities. I was struck by that other quote, you know, that as preachers, we're the ones who stand between God and his people. And so as church family, when people stand up and preach here, please pray. Pray that we don't get in the way. But if you're somebody and it's just on your heart to actually explain the gospel to people, to explain the good news of God to people, then do come forward because we'd love to pray for you too. And as we said last week, this is not like a, a lottery thing. We don't have to have your number. Anything that God's doing with you, you'd love someone to come alongside and pray, then do come forward as the band, pray, band play. And one of our church family will come alongside you and just encourage you in that. So why don't you come forward now if you want to respond to any of those things or something else. And if you're part of the church family and God's not doing anything with you at the moment, then do come forward because there'll be plenty of people to pray for. Yeah, just keep coming right to the front. Just for ease of us organising, if you've come because you have a specific back or physical problem, can you come on to this side and then we'll just know what we're praying for and come right to the front. And let's have some other folks from the church come and pray.